How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Genius Foods. I am so excited for this episode of the show in which I am going to interview Michael Pollan. Now, Michael Pollan is a very well-known journalist uh, who's covered the food system over the past couple of decades in a number of best-selling books, uh, probably the most famous of which being The Omnivore's Dilemma. But he's turned his focus for his latest book on psychedelics and particularly what they can potentially offer to those of us struggling with issues related to mental health. His new book is called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. And whether or not you have any interest in psychedelics, I highly recommend listening to this episode of the show, nonetheless because of the insights that Michael is going to share with us about the mind. Now just to um, touch on the, the value of finding new modalities to treat mental health issues for a moment. More than 4% of the world's population live with depression, and women, young people, and the elderly are the most prone to its disabling effects. An estimated 322 million people suffered depressive disorders in 2015, a rise of about 18% in a decade. Depression is the single largest contributor to years lived with disability, and it's one and a half times more common in women than in men. A further 250 million people suffer from anxiety disorders, including phobias, panic attacks, obsessive compulsive behavior, and PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And we're going to give you a novel framework in which to think about these conditions that research involving psychedelics has helped to elucidate. So I'm very excited. Before we get into it, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show. I'm very grateful for all of the sponsors that have supported the Genius Life over the past couple of months. And this episode is brought to you by my good friends at Nordic Naturals. I happen to be a big fan of the fish oil produced by Nordic Naturals, and I was before they paid any attention to my podcast. I enjoy taking a good, high-quality fish oil um, because it helps me basically uh, procure insurance that I'm getting preformed EPA and DHA omega-3 fats to support my brain and body day in and day out, especially because, you know, the modern food supply tends to be awash in... Um, omega-6 pro-inflammatory fatty acids. And so, you know, balance is key. Omega-6 uh, fatty acids are essential, but still, you want to make sure that you are balancing them out with omega-3s. And that's why on days that I neglect to eat fatty fish like wild salmon, mackerel, sardines, and things like that, which, you know, I happen to love, on days that I, that I don't uh, feel like eating fish, I'll pop a fish oil pill or four. So, Again, Nordic Naturals, head over to nordicnaturals.com, check them out, and thank you Nordic Naturals for sponsoring this episode of The Genius Life. Really appreciate you guys. All right, now before we plunge head first into the wild and wacky world of psychedelia and mental health, oh my god, you guys, I'm so excited, please take a moment to uh, support The Genius Life by leaving a rating and review for it on iTunes. Um, that would really help me to spread the word about what I'm doing here. And also, please share this episode on social media. Either tweet a link or post um, it up on your Instagram stories. I would really appreciate that. And if you tag me and I see it, I promise I'll repost you. That would mean uh, a lot to me. Finally, I'd also really love it if you guys would consider joining my newsletter. If you head over to maxlugavere.com and enter your first and last name and your email address... 
I'll get to send you updates about products that I think you ought to check out along with exclusive discounts, scientific articles that I think can help improve your life in at least one way, and books that I recommend. I don't spam. I don't give your email address out to anybody else, I promise you, and you can opt out at any any time. So again, that's maxlugavir.com. Um, right there on the front page, you will see a way to join my newsletter. That would be the bomb. All right, guys. Well, I'm pumped to get into this chat with Michael Pollan, and I have a feeling that you're going to love it too. Afterwards, don't forget you can pick up his brand new book. It's called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. All right, y'all. Let's rock. Well, Michael Pollan, thank you so much for joining me. This is awesome. Very good to be here. I'm uh, I'm excited to chat with you. I'm a fan of your work, and um, I'm a big fan of where you've gone lately in terms of your investigation into the the wild and wacky world of psychedelia for mm-hmm. uh, various um, potential therapeutic uses. So I guess let's start at the top. Why don't you tell me a little bit about um, what your new book is about, How to Change Your Mind, as well as what inspired you to write it? Yeah, so this book is a departure for me. The last few books I've written have been about food, uh, about you know the, the food system and its implications for both environmental and personal health. Um, but I've always had this interest in um, the ways in which we use plants uh, besides feeding ourselves. Um, and one of the ways that people have been using plants for uh, you know hundreds of thousands of years has been to change consciousness. And that's a very peculiar desire, why that should be, and it, and it is a universal human desire. Every culture on earth uses some plant or fungus to change consciousness, with the single exception of the Inuit, the Eskimos. And the only reason they don't is nothing good grows where they live. Um, I'm, I'm sure that they would if they had anything good. Um, and I've written about this before in, in a book I published in 2001 called uh, The Botany of Desire. Um, there are chapters on food that led directly into The Omnivore's Dilemma. Um, but there is also a chapter on cannabis and um, the curious case of this plant that devised a chemical that just happens to fit the lock of this neurotransmitter uh, system in our brains. Um, so that's always been in the back of my mind. And then uh, a couple years ago, I started getting wind of these um, research projects at, you know, very uh, mainstream universities like uh, NYU and Johns Hopkins and UCLA that were using psilocybin, which is the uh, ingredient, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, to uh, treat people who had been diagnosed with cancer and were living with this terror of death uh, accompanied by depression and fear. And they found that uh, a single experience on psilocybin, uh, and this is, it's important to understand, this is not using the drugs in the usual way, but using them in a, in a very carefully prepared and guided psychedelic journey, uh, accompanied by two therapists who prepare you and sit with you and then help you uh, make sense of what happens. Um, also, you're wearing eye shades and listen, and, and you've got headphones on, so you're very much, it's a very internal trip. But I started talking to these people for an article I did in The New Yorker, and um, they had had these profound transformative experiences that in many cases, uh, more than two-thirds of the cases, had um, 
alleviated their depression, anxiety, and in many cases, completely removed their fear of death. I thought this was really incredible. And um, after publishing that article, uh, which is, uh, you can find it online, it's called The Trip Treatment, um, I decided I had to write a book. There was just so much going on here and such big implications for, uh, you know, the mental health treatment in this country, but also for for me personally, and for anyone who, uh, you know, is, I mean, we're all dealing with mortality, right? And uh, so that, that was the uh, impetus for the book. The book looks at psychedelics from, as I like to do in all my books, from several different points of view. Uh, so it's a, it's a piece of science journalism, but it's also a memoir, and it's also a history of uh, the role of these psychedelics in our culture going back to the 40s when they were discovered, and actually even much further back to, uh, we don't know how far back, uh, because ancient cultures have used psychedelics, uh, many of them, um, in many different ways. So, um, yeah, so that's the, that's the basic outline of the book. And it's got uh, chapters on neuroscience, chapters on therapeutic implications, uh, chapters on social history. Uh, I mean, the whole 60s history of psychedelics is just a great and wild story. Um, but the part, the story people don't know is that there was a, a lot going on in the forties and fifties, um, that got kind of swamped by the, the whole idea. I mean, I, I think most of us believe psychedelics were, were, a, a you know, a, a product of the sixties, the psychedelic sixties. But in fact, there was a really rich history before that. So I, I, I dug into that also. So it was, it was interesting. great fun to write. Uh, I felt like, one of those rare moments as a writer that you, you know, you've hit on the perfect topic for this point in your life, which turns out to be the perfect topic at this point in the culture's life. So that doesn't always happen, but sometimes it works out. Yeah. Well said. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, that mortality is just one of the many things that we have to contend with today, but today chronic disease, disease is like Alzheimer's disease, other forms mm. of dementia, cancer, heart disease, I mean, are rampant. And according to the World Health Organization, 300 million people today struggle with depression, which is on track to become the major, um, you know, form of disability affecting younger generations uh, in the years to come. Uh, books regarding anxiety and how to you know, solve or, or tr self-treat anxiety are one of the top, you know, growth sectors in, in mm -hmm. you know, large uh, book retailers. So, I mean, I feel like, yeah, you're right. The timing for this book um, is perfect. Well, you know, something I didn't realize when I started was uh, the, the, the really sorry state of mental health care in this country and indeed in the world. Um, rates of depression, as you suggest, are rising. So are rates of suicide, alarmingly so, and addiction. Um, you know, so we have a mental health crisis. And if you look at mental health care and compare it to any other kind of medicine, compare it to oncology or cardiology or infectious disease, it hasn't accomplished very much. It hasn't reduced suffering. It hasn't reduced the number of cases of, the, of, of uh, mental illness. Whereas if you look at those other, other branches of medicine, and they have done amazing work in the last 10 or 20 years to reduce suffering, to, uh, to cure, um, not just address symptoms. And uh, so, you know, it seems to me now it's now mental health, I think, is harder to do. I think you know, we don't understand the brain as well as we understand cancer, for example, or the immune system or, or how infectious disease works. Um, so it's a, it's a tough nut to crack. But um, I, I don't think anyone could argue with the fact that, that 
um, psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists of all kinds need some new tools to address yeah. this really severe uh, problem. And I think that's one of the reasons that some very you know, prominent uh, psychiatrists and, and institutions involved with psychiatry are taking a good hard look at psychedelics. Um, and that, you know, seemed to me very, you know, kind of a fringy topic, but it's moving very quickly to the mainstream. And, you know, there, there are big trials underway to use uh, psilocybin to treat depression, both in our country and about eight countries in Europe. And uh, MDMA or ecstasy is being used to treat post-traumatic stress disorder uh, with, with very promising uh, results. And uh, we may see that these, these drugs um, will move from being Schedule One controlled substances to um, probably Schedule Three or Four, uh, which would allow people to prescribe them and make them available to people who have depression, who have anxiety. Uh, you mentioned uh, Alzheimer's or um, uh, dementia. Um, there are trials uh, underway or planned to uh, give people uh, psilocybin when they get at such a diagnosis, because like a cancer diagnosis, obviously it's a, it's a traumatic event. Um, and the thinking is not that it will, will help with the Alzheimer's or dementia, although there is some reason to explore that too, um, because psilocybin has been shown to be neuro uh, to produce neurogenesis actually like increase the the branching of um of neurons uh even at low doses so it may have implications for the treating of dementia uh and other brain diseases but um but the main thing is to help people when they get that diagnosis to come to terms with it and deal with the spiritual crisis um that's involved and that's very exciting too. There's a lot. There's a lot of uh, mental health indications we haven't looked at yet. Uh, eating disorders is another one. Um, and it might sound like I'm talking about it as a panacea. Um, and it is true that there are several different uh, mental disorders that it seems to be helpful for. But there, I think there's a, a reason for that. It's not. It's not an accident. And that is that those. Those disorders are all characterized by a kind of uh, frozen quality in, in, of thinking. You know, whether you're depressed or anxious, those two things are very closely related, right? I mean, as somebody put it, um, I quoted in the book, uh, depression is regret about the past and anxiety is regret about the future. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's really true. Um, but obsession, addiction, all these things are... are are the products of a brain that is stuck in these loops of recrimination and negative thought. And it seems to jog people out of those loops or grooves in a, in a really interesting way. I've heard you describe it as a brain that is uh, dominated by excessive order. Yeah. So um, one of the neuroscientists, one of the, the really visionary people working in this area is an Englishman uh, named Robin Carhart Harris. And he's theorized that you know, our minds are, um, uh, can be looked at as having a spectrum from excessive order to excessive entropy or anarchy. Um, and that a healthy brain is at some kind of point in the middle of that arc, that it has enough order to be sane, um, but just enough entropy to be flexible. And if you go too far toward the orderly side, which we tend to as we get older, I think, 
and, and, and become more the creature of our mental habits. Um, excessive order is reflected in things like depression and uh, obsession and addiction, all these kind of um, stuck ways of thinking. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the mental disorders that, that people now don't think um, psychedelics are very good for, like schizophrenia and personality disorder and bipolar disorder. And these are all characterized by a, um, a lack of order in the brain. So he's, you know, so he's kind of positing that mental health is, is, is a, there's, a, there's a very healthy point between those two. Um, but you know, we're, we all have, we all suffer from, uh, excessive order in our brains to some extent. I mean, we all get stuck. We all get into these grooves of very predictable ways of dealing with problems, uh, confronting situations that arise because they've worked in the past. And, uh, so we tend to go there, but we also get stuck in these stories. We tell ourselves, you know, the, the addict story that I can't get through the day without a drink or the, or the depressive story that I'm, I'm unworthy of love. Um, uh, I'm a worthless person. My work is shit, you know, and, um, and psychedelic seems to kind of be a, a, a lubricant for cognition and, and loosen things up in a way that, uh, can really help people break out of those ruts. It's so interesting. You talk in the book about how psychedelics were actually studied beginning in the 1950s for anxiety, depression, even bad habits like smoking and, and alcoholism. And then, you know, then came the 60s and there was really sort of like a kibosh put on, you know, that exciting line of research. There was, I guess, um, you know, psychedelics became associated with the hippie movement and, uh, yeah. and you know, it sort of acted like a, like a speed bump to, to progress. Yeah, well, in retro, well, hopefully only a speed bump, but you know, it has it stopped research for thirty years, which is kind of incredible. Wow. I don't know of another case where you had this promising line of uh, scientific inquiry that was stopped for reasons that were essentially political. Um, it wasn't like it wasn't working. It was that LSD in particular became such a threat to the status quo. I mean, it was tied up with the anti-war movement, with the with the rise of the counterculture, the so-called generation gap, and people uh, and governments became really fearful of it. Um, so, yeah, but there was uh, the part people don't know as much about, and and it was really fun digging this out. Was all the research that went on in the 50s. Uh, I, I had no idea and was really shocked to find that there had been a thousand uh, peer-reviewed papers about psychedelics between 1950 and 1965. And what was it? Uh, six international conferences devoted to LSD. This was like mainstream uh, psychiatry wow. in those days. And they really thought this might be a, a miracle drug. For, uh, for depression, for uh, alcoholism was a big focus. Um, and they were getting very good results uh, with alcoholism. And they were also treating the dying, um, people with cancer, and getting good results with them. Um, so in a, in a sense, what's happening now, uh, what I call this renaissance of psychedelic research, is, uh, is an excavation of the old research and an attempt using modern and much more rigorous uh, controls and methods to um, uh, pick up that thread and, and like retest these ideas. And they're testing out pretty well. Um, the, there is a trial for alcoholism that is in process at uh, NYU um, 
based on a trial, a small trial that was done at uh, University of New Mexico that had very good success uh, treating alcoholism. Um, and there's a smoking cessation trial at Johns Hopkins that, I, to, to my mind, is one of the most remarkable. Uh, in a small group, they got about, they had success with about 80% of the smokers. Now, it's a really tough addiction to break. It's hmm. really powerful. It's the worst, and the, or among the worst. It, yeah. And, and the idea that a single guided psilocybin trip could, could help you break that um, habit is, is really quite remarkable because we really don't have a lot of tools to help people do that. You know, we have nicotine patches and things like that. But in, in fact, that doesn't break the, uh, the addiction. Um, so how does that work is really the, the question I was perplexed by and spent a lot of time trying to understand. So I interviewed a lot of the people in the smoking study and um, they told the most remarkable stories that, um, you know, there's this one woman I talked to, she was like 60, she was Irish, she was a book editor, and she described on her psilocybin journey, uh, she sprouted wings and she flew all through European history and she met Shakespeare and, you know, witnessed the Battle of Waterloo and all this kind of stuff. And she died three times and she went to the Ganges and she saw the smoke rise from the funeral, from her own funeral pyre. And then she said, um, and she realized during her trip, there was so much to do and see in the world that what a shame to, to, to be killing yourself with cigarettes. Now, that's kind of a banal observation, and I'm sure she'd had it before or someone had told her it's stupid to kill yourself with cigarettes. Um, but something about the psychedelic experience makes uh, an insight like that incredibly sticky. It, it takes on this authority um, that it's, you know, it's a revealed truth that's been handed to you. And so it allows people to act on it. Uh, and I found that very interesting. Um, it's hard to explain that. I don't think we understand why psychedelic experience does that. But it has been noted by other people, too, that um, the, the insights people have um, become these profound realizations that actually allow them to change their behavior. And you've written that, the, interestingly, the more mystical the experience, the more effective the treatment seems to be. Yeah, they, you know, there's an interesting correlation. Um, so mystical experience, uh, it's really interesting and kind of funny to hear scientists talking about something like mystical experience, but they do. And uh, mystical experience is a, a phenomenon that's been, you know, observed in uh, religion and literature and philosophy for thousands of years. And it's been kind of analyzed and William James helped kind of uh, the, you know, the, the great American psychologist from the turn of the last century. Uh, he, he wrote a, a, a landmark essay about it and it has certain qualities. And one is a sense of um, your ego, your sense of self dissolving, followed by uh, a sense that you're merging with something larger that the walls have come down and you become one with nature or the divinity or the universe, whatever it is. And then you have a transcendence of space and time there. They become very distorted. Uh, this noetic sense that I was just describing this sense of revealed truth, uh, this sense that it's coming over you that you can't control it. It's, it's, it's just, it descends on you. It's, it's a bolt from the blue uh, kind of divine inspiration and a very ecstatic sense of well-being uh, that is often uh, followed. It can be a little scary, too, but there's, it's usually followed by a sense of well-being. So 
Early in this research, uh, there was a very important paper written in 2006 by Roland Griffith, who's one of the pioneering scientists at Johns Hopkins, um, where he, he wanted to see whether he could induce a mystical experience in healthy volunteers uh, who weren't otherwise spiritually inclined. And he found in, um, I think it was 80% of cases, that he could, uh, that he could. And that people would have an experience that matched up with this so-called mystical uh, experience. And later, when they started doing therapeutic work, they found that the people who had a complete mystical experience, in other words, they scored high enough on the, on the hood mysticism scale, I think it's called, um, got the best results. And that there's something about that experience that seems to uh, predict success in therapy. Um, and it may be the fact that you have to relax your sense of self before you can make progress. And that, you know, ego stands in the way of uh, often of healing because it is the ego that enforces our mental habits. It's the ego that tells those destructive stories um, that we're unworthy or can't get through the day without a, a cigarette or a drink. And um, depressed people often have an overactive ego, an ego that kind of attacks them. And, um, and anxious people have an ego that's worrying constantly and getting a little bit of relief from that ego may allow people to set some new patterns in motion. Um, that's the theory. I mean, I, I, you know, it's important to emphasize there's a lot we don't understand, but, um, but it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, unplugging your computer and plugging it back in again. And a lot of the, a lot of the crap that's accumulated in slowness and stuckness, uh, goes away. Um, and, and indeed some of the scientists talk about it as uh, rebooting the brain. Talk to me about the default mode network, which I think some people describe as being like the seat of the ego and, you know, where all that sort of, uh, autobiographical, um, repetitive, you know, narrative self-talk really kind of lives in the brain. Yeah, this is a really a fascinating part of the story. So I got very curious to know, well, what's going on in the, in the brain during the psychedelic experience? What changes? And of course, so did the researchers. And a few years ago, this guy in England, I just mentioned, Robin Carhart Harris, started giving people psilocybin and, and LSD, I think, and, uh, and then sliding them into an MRI machine to take images of their brain while they were tripping. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an MRI, but um, the idea that you would, do, you would be in that narrow tube with that banging magnet while you were tripping uh, is just you know, we, we owe these volunteers a, a, a big debt that they're willing to do this because it's pretty freaky idea. Um, and anyway, so they were very surprised by what they found. Um, I think the assumption going in was that a brain on psychedelics would just be lit up all over and it would be, you know, um, uh, just so much action going on to reflect the mental fireworks people report. But to their surprise, they found that this one particular brain network called the default mode network was deactivated, uh, suppressed on psychedelics. So the next question became, well, what, what is the default mode network and what does it do? Well, it turns out it's, it actually was only discovered about 15, 20 years ago, um, but it is a, a set of structures. The brain is now understood to be a networked system, right? It's not like there's a one-to-one -one relationship between this structure and this phenomenon. Um, but the default mode network links together the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in executive function, uh, with 
um, the posterior cingulate cortex and the uh, and older, deeper uh, parts of the brain involved in emotion and memory. It's a regulatory network. It kind of rides herd on the rest of the system. Uh, the brain is a hierarchical system, and, and the, the DMN, or default mode network, is at the top. Um, so what does it do? Well, as you suggest, it's involved in a lot of functions having to do with generating the sense of a self. So it's in our default mode network that we that go when uh, we're mind-wandering, when um, we're just reflecting, when we're being self-critical. Uh, it's the default mode network that is involved in time travel, the ability to think about the, the future and the past. And if you think about that, you need a sense of future and past to have a sense of self. Um, your, what is your sense of self except your, your history um, and your objectives in the future? And so that, that happens there. And something called theory of mind also takes place in the default mode network. And that's the ability that probably is unique to humans, we don't know for sure, uh, to imagine that other beings have mental states like your own. And that's very important to kind of moral reasoning and things like that, and empathy and compassion. Um, so as you suggest, yeah, to the extent we can say the ego has an address, a uh, home address, uh, it would be in the default mode network. And interestingly enough, this is precisely the part of the brain that is deactivated during psychedelic experience at a high dose. Um, it can be just diminished in, in its um, function by a, a lower dose. Um, so why should that be helpful? Well, it may be that depression and anxiety are the result of a uh, overactive default mode network. People, you know, who are not engaged in activities, um, basically they call it default mode network because this is where your mind goes when it doesn't have anything to do, when the attentional networks are are not engaged. And they discovered it because they were doing all these uh, brain function images and they needed a baseline. So they would tell people, okay, don't do anything. Just quietly sit there. Don't, uh, you know, no tasks. And this would be the part of the brain that would light up. It's a part of the brain that uses a lot of energy and is very active in people who are, you know, uh, engaged in self-reflection, which is not usually for most people a very happy thing. They tend to go to the worrisome places or guilty places or, you know, um, often to very unhappy places. So um, giving the brain a break, uh, taking the, you know, the orchestra conductor off the stage for a while, interesting things happen in the rest of the brain. Um, and they've also imaged this. And what happens when the default mode network is, is diminished in its uh, power is that other parts of the brain that don't ordinarily have anything to do with one another suddenly start talking to each other. Wow. And there's an image in the book uh, that I reprint that shows this rewiring that takes place. So suddenly, instead of every all the signals from one brain network to another passing through the default mode network and you know being edited in, in a sense, everybody's talking to everybody else. And there are all these new pathways that get established temporarily during the trip. So your, let's say your visual, uh, your visual cortex, your visual system might start talking to your um, motor system. So you actually can uh, feel, you can touch music. It becomes, or, or smell it or taste it. Um, and, and that's the phenomenon of synesthesia uh, where one sense gets mixed, cross-wired with another. 
So you've got these new um, relationships springing up in the brain, and some of them may well be insights, you know, I mean, that, that you're connecting the dots in new ways and ideas that never occurred to you may come up. It, some of it is hallucination, too, when you're, let's say, your visual system starts talking to your uh, your emotions. And, and so you start seeing what you fear or what you desire. Um, it actually presents itself to your to your, you know, your visual system. So there's so much more we need to learn, but it's very exciting what the, you know, the clues that are being generated by this work. It's super exciting. Just to close the loop on the, um, the default mode network, can this be tied back to that spectrum between order and chaos that we were talking about before? That's an interesting idea. Um, probably it can, uh, and probably it is the enforcer of order. Um, and you know, one of the scientists described it to me as the corporate executive or orchestra conductor or capital city of this country. Um, and so it does exert some regulatory function on the rest of the, um, on the rest of the brain. Yeah. So, I mean, the, it, it makes me wonder whether or not, um, that can facilitate creativity for, you know, people like us who write or painters or musicians or just anybody who wants to maybe think outside of the box to help to, yeah. you know, to help them solve a problem. Well, you know, that was a, that was an interesting line of psychedelic research back in the sixties and seven, early seventies. And it, and it hasn't been followed up yet, uh, in this Renaissance, but I think it will be. Um, I think basically, um, there's a kind of way in which, I mean, you, you want to relax your critical faculties in order to be creative. I mean, it's fine to be a critic when you're rewriting what you've written, but when you're putting it down, you want to kind of um, open the valve wide and let, you know, let things pop into your mind and make unusual connections and come up with cool metaphors, all of which involves, I think, relaxing regulatory functions. Um, it's uh, what Aldous Huxley called the reducing valve of consciousness. Yeah, exactly. He, his, his, uh, you know, he had his famous mescaline trip in 1955 and he felt like that the reducing valve that was limiting the amount of both sensory information and mental material, limiting what could come into his conscious awareness, um, was open wide. And he just saw much more of reality than he'd ever seen before. And, um, you know, there is a sense that you, you, you're missing things and suddenly you're getting them on psychedelics. I mean, not always, but sometimes that the bandwidth for sound and for color is suddenly much, much broader than it's been before. Um, so, I mean, I'd be very interested to see if we could figure out a way to study creativity. I mean, there are, creativity is hard to measure, but there are these scales of things like divergent thinking, uh, you know, where you, you know, you're told to come up with as many uses for a brick as you can. And that's considered a measure of creativity. If you come up, you know, if you've got more than six or five, or I don't know what it is, um, and so wouldn't it be interesting to give people psychedelics, maybe in low doses or medium doses, and see whether uh, they're creative problem solving? Um, there's a proposal in England to study the game Go. And I don't know that much about that game, but the people proposing this think that um, it's a good surrogate for creativity and thinking outside the box. Um, it's, so it's not just crunching possibilities, but coming up with novel solutions. Um, so, you know, look, there are lots of writers and artists have, have said that they've had breakthroughs on, um, on psychedelics. And I tell the stories of a couple of people who, who, who really did get new ideas on psychedelics. So it, 
it stands to reason, but I think it's something we still have to study. Yeah. I mean, when you were talking about earlier, the, um, the study involving smoking cessation and the fact that it allowed the subjects in the study to kind of step back, you know, zoom out, pull the, pull the camera back on their lives so that they could see how, you know, awful, ridiculous it is that they were basically killing themselves with these cigarettes. I just wonder if that might allow people to see problems in a similar light. And I don't know if you talk about this in your book, but isn't there evidence that, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know to the, the degree to which there is evidence for this. Maybe they talk about it openly, but that the internet basically was birthed from psychedelia. Well, there a lot of things about the internet were, um, you know, there's a really interesting history of uh, psychedelic use in Silicon Valley. And I've interviewed a lot of people about that. And, you know, many people have heard about Steve Jobs and that he felt his psychedelic experience was uh, really central to his design aesthetic and other things. And he famously, you know, made fun of, uh, of uh, Windows and said, had, had Bill Gates used LSD, it would Windows would be a much better product. Um, Gates responded, but I did, I did. Um, uh, so I don't know if it's, if there's anything to that, but what I, what I learned in my research is that the history of psychedelic use in Silicon Valley goes back much further to the early fifties when, uh, a group of Silicon Valley engineers, um, uh, got turned on to LSD and psilocybin and started using it. And, um, and they felt it was enormously helpful, especially the engineers, uh, in solving problems. I mean, if you if you go back and imagine designing uh, computer chips without computer aided design, right? I mean, now we use computers to design computer chips, but initially they were designed. They're three D structures, right, of great complexity, and they would just do these uh, overlays, like overhead projectors, you know, and and uh, with different drawings in each one, and you had to hold in your head this incredibly complicated three dimensional structure. And they felt that LSD helped them uh, imagine the structure of a tri- chip. Um, so we may, you know, we may uh, have LSD to thank for um, the computer revolution in, at, at various stages. Um, there is also, though, uh, Doug Engelbart was a, a famous computer uh, engineer in Silicon Valley. He invented uh, email, video conferencing. The, the computer mouse, I mean, the list of his achievements was astonishing. And he participated in LSD experiments in, um, uh, at the, something called, uh, I think it was the uh, International Foundation for Psychedelic Research or something that was in uh, Silicon Valley in the, in the 70s. And he was one of their, their first people. They turned on a lot of people in Silicon Valley who went on to do amazing things. Um, during the experiment, he didn't invent any of those things. What he invented during the experiment, and basically what they did is they gave, they had a bunch of creative people. Uh, they had an architect, they had a computer guy, they had you know writers and artists of various kinds. They gave them a hundred micrograms of LSD, which is not a huge dose, but it's you you feel it. And after they'd kind of you know uh, rolled around on the floor for a little while, they told them to get to their desks and get to work. And um, Doug Engelbart supposedly invented uh, what he called a tinkle toy to train boys, to toilet train boys, and that if you aim a stream of urine at it, it, it turned like a pinwheel. And um, so that was, so we have LFD wow. to thank for that also. But he did go on to these other inventions. Uh, and um, 
Uh, Stuart Brand, who I interviewed about this, you know, really felt that there was a there there was a interesting um, relationship. And he himself, you know, this is the guy who invented the whole Earth catalog and then uh, the Well, which is one of the first computer networks. And and he had a lot to do with uh, recognizing the the potential of the personal computer. You know, it's, it wasn't that long ago, you're not quite old enough, but I am, that um, the image of computers was not like Apple's image of personal liberation through the PC. It was really organization man. It was, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was industrial. They were giant. They were mainframes. Uh, the punch card was uh, became a symbol for conformity, and uh, so the image of computers was the very opposite of personal liberation. And really, it was Stuart Brand who had the vision of that computers could be reconceived in a different way once they were small enough and light enough to become PCs. And um, he describes an experience uh, that uh, for me in the book uh, of. In 19, let's see, it would have been 67, 68, he, uh, he goes up on the roof of his house in North Beach in San Francisco, and he's taken 100 micrograms of, uh, of um, acid, and he's looking out toward the water, and he sees, he can see the, the, the lines of the streets going down, and, and he can see them curving, and he, he thinks he sees the curvature of the earth. And, um, and it occurs to them, you know, we've been sending these, um, spacecraft, Apollo spacecraft to the moon and back or, or close, you know, they finally left earth, earth's orbit. And we haven't yet seen a photograph of the earth from space, the whole earth from space, the, the beautiful blue marble. And at that point we hadn't, we hadn't seen that image. Mm-hmm. And he start he came down and he realized this would change everything. This would, this would get people to care about the planet. It would help the environment. This would be, you know, um, absolutely uh, revolutionary. So he starts a campaign uh, and he starts it in Sproul Plaza on the Berkeley campus where I teach uh, in 67 or 68. And, and, he, and he sells a button that says, why haven't they shown us a picture of the earth from space, <laughs> suggesting they were withholding something? And lo and behold, the next, uh, I think it was Apollo 8, the next one to uh, go out to the moon and back without landing, uh, they did turn the cameras around and they took these spectacular Earthrise pictures um, and released them. And he put that on the the cover of the whole Earth catalog. Um, And that image was galvanizing for the culture. It really did change things. And, And people really think it contributed to the modern uh, environmental movement. Now, whether they would have done it or not, I assume they would have done it at some point, but, um, and whether his campaign reached NASA, you know, uh, I, I can't tell you, but, um, but that way of thinking, uh, owes, owes a debt to LSD also. That is fascinating. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I've heard about, uh, astronauts experiencing the overview effect. Mm. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Uh, Edgar Mitchell wrote about that. He was on Apollo 12 or 13, um, and he had a mystical experience on his way back and he saw the earth rise, you know, several times. And, uh, he had this sense that we're all connected at the cellular level or the molecular level. And, um, 
that is the, you know, that's a, that was a classic mystical experience. And he got back and he, he devoted his life to that and to the understanding of consciousness. He founded something in uh, Northern California called the Institute of Noetic Science or IONS. And it's still going. I was just up there last week touring and they're doing really interesting experience. Well, one thing they're trying to do is recreate the overview effect in a VR, in a virtual reality setting. And they have an amazing uh, virtual reality uh, technology. They haven't finished it yet, but it's being designed now. Um, and uh, But they're also looking at questions like, can consciousness change things in the world? I mean, can you use it as a, is it a force? Um, you know, the observer effect. Um, and, and they're looking at clairvoyance, clairvoyance and telepathy. Um, so anyway, it's, uh, the overview effect is really an interesting phenomenon. Super interesting. You earlier you mentioned when we were talking about Roland Griffith's studies at uh, at Hopkins that you know the the nuance that you hit on, which I think should be underscored, is that you know psychedelics are uh, meant for a very or at least uh, safest when taken under a very specific set and setting, and um, and so you know there's this movement now, and I think there's been. Uh, you know, leg- legislation in Denver most recently, and you wrote an article on this to decriminalize psychedelics, in particular psilocybin mushrooms. But I feel like you were um, kind of hesitant to jump on board because obviously there are, you know, these drugs are not without uh, risks. Yeah, they are. Let me talk about risk a little because I think it's really important to. Uh, I do think that you can minimize the risks um, if you if you have a guide, if you have whether that person is a trained professional or even just a friend who's not you know who's staying closer to the earth uh, and is with you and keeping an eye on you. Because although the drugs are not biologically toxic, um, they're remarkably non toxic actually compared to other drugs we take routinely. I mean, even over the counter drugs like Tylenol and things. Um, there's no overdose for psilocybin that we've ever found. And there's no overdose for LSD, which is kind of incredible. Um, they're also non-addictive. Um, they don't, you're, they're not habit forming, but there are psychological and practical risks. Um, you know, you don't have command of your faculties uh, when you're tripping on a high dose and you could do something stupid. People do jump off buildings thinking they can fly. This has really happened. People walk into traffic, uh, get in a car and drive. Um, so having someone to keep an eye on you, I think is a really good idea. Um, and then there are psychological risks. Uh, People have bad trips, um, which are just, you know, terrifying experiences, uh, of, of, you know, feeling, you know, the total loss of a sense of self and descending into the void. And, uh, it can be really dark and a good guide or therapist can, can get you out of that or prepare you for it in a way that allows you to get yourself out of it. Um, so very often they'll tell you, you know, if you see something scary, don't try to run away. If you feel like your self is dissolving or, or being obliterated or you're going crazy or you're dying, go with it. Don't fight it. Surrender is their advice. And it's, and it, it's really good advice. It's the best advice to avoid a bad trip. Um, and then there are people who are at risk of serious mental illness, like schizophrenia, and they definitely should stay away from psychedelics. If you have any family history of schizophrenia, um, they are one of the kind of mental shocks. Uh, the psychedelics are one of the kind of mental shocks that can 
that can cause a psychotic break in people that probably were going to have it sooner or later, but better later, right? Yeah. We're talking about opening up the reducing valve, you know, the doors of perception. If you already, I guess, have a brain that is more prone to yeah. to anarchy and chaos as you so eloquently described it earlier taking psychedelics could push you into that realm of psychosis it can and it has and and so that's why i i offer caution you know these ballot initiatives that and there's there may be one in oregon now and california coming up in 2020 i mean they're very well intentioned i i do believe that no one should go to jail for using a magic mushroom you know personally or growing it or taking it uh possessing it um, it would be disingenuous for me to say otherwise. I describe in the book my own use of, of psychedelics, and that was not legal. Um, and I wish it had been legal. But these drugs are much more consequential than cannabis. Um, more can go wrong. Um, and as a society, we don't have enough experience of them to know exactly the best way to use them. I mean, yes, the guided trip seems to be a really good way to minimize risk, but there may be other good ways to use them. And, you know, if you think of how much experience we had with cannabis before we started legalizing it, it's just a very different situation. I would also, you know, so, so I'm kind of cautious about using ballot initiatives to change this. Um, and also we're, we're on a path that's working. I mean, you know, this FDA approval uh, process is underway. There have been no uh, impediments put in the way of the researchers. They're getting approvals to do the studies they want. And if these studies pan out, the government, the federal government, not just the state or local government, will approve psilocybin for use as a medicine in the next few years. And I, I think we should be careful not to screw that up by, um, you know, launching a premature political battle over uh, psychedelics. A lot of people are still really afraid of them. Um, and it's not out of the question that we could have the kind of backlash we had in the 1960s, uh, where they were perceived as disruptive. I mean, imagine now if in Denver, some bad stuff happens, right? What if somebody does jump off a building thinking they could fly? It'll, it'll be the, all eyes, all fingers will point at psilocybin as an evil drug. Um, and a dangerous drug. And that could get in the way of, you know, completing this research. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm totally sympathetic to the goals, but in politics, you have to think not only about what fight you want to make, but when you want to make it. And I, it seems to me, this is not the moment to make that fight. Couldn't agree more. I, um, and I've been pretty open on this podcast in previous episodes about the fact that I, I kind I feel that way actually about THC. You know, so I mean, uh -huh. I personally, I've, you know, used THC and, you know, in high school, even in college. And it has always made me feel like I was uh, borderline psychotic, yeah. almost hallucinogenic. So, I mean, I can't fathom how, you know, it, a drug like that could be made recreationally legal, even though I'm very much for its use medicinally. Um you know, I'm very well aware of how, you know, bioindividuality, how unique we each are and in terms of our reactions, both physiologically and psychologically to these compounds. And so I think, uh, you know, I applaud your, your reservation. Yeah. And I got a lot of shit for, for it from the, um, you know, the drug policy community and the, and the activist community who, who felt it was, um, you know, I was infringing on people's cognitive liberty 
And um, but I would say also that I don't see a big problem here. Like, are a lot of people being thrown in jail for psilocybin? Um, you know, it's cannabis. We have to remember that. Yeah, I agree. Cannabis is a more serious drug than than we often uh, give it credit for, um, and that people can have really dark experiences on it. But there were millions of people um, being arrested for cannabis yeah. and hundreds of thousands of people in jail. And a lot of mass incarceration was for uh, cannabis crimes, you know, under three strikes. There are people serving very long sentences. And one of those strikes very often is a cannabis crime. So there were very important social justice reasons to change that system as soon as yes. we possibly could. And I think that justified uh you know, ballot initiatives and all those kind of things. I, you know, psychedelics are different. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's a small number of people, people who want them seem to get access to them. It's very hard to get arrested, you know, with psilocybin. Um, and uh, it's already a pretty low priority for law enforcement, but I understand the importance of the symbolism and there are people who want to come out of the closet. And I understand that instinct and, you know, people who were, you know, gay people coming out of the closet, they didn't want to hear, wait, it's too early. Don't do this now. It's premature. And I can understand how that sounds to people who feel that they want to be able to do this openly. Um, but it's not going to be that long before these uh, chemicals are, are, are approved by the federal government, I think. And when that happens, it will be the moment to push on this other front. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I'm so excited. Further research, definitely, you know, I'm just giddy at the prospect. What are some other, I like to leave my audience with, you know, actionable things that they can take away after listening to this and integrate into their lives. Other means of mystical experience. You mentioned earlier, you know, going to space, but not all of us are able to do that, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, have you talked about any other? Uh, yeah. Um, what, two things I would mention. Yeah. In, in my investigation, um, with one of the underground guides I, I worked with, uh, I was having a guided LSD experience. But before he did that, he likes to kind of uh, check you out and give you kind of a little test test run uh, for your tolerance of psychedelic consciousness. So he used a method called uh, holotropic breathwork. Um, and this was a method to achieve a psychedelic state without a drug that was pioneered by Stanislav Grof, who was a, a very prominent psychedelic psychiatrist in the 60s and 70s, and, and uh, he's still around, actually. And um, after LSD was banned and he was using that therapy, he wanted an, another way to achieve similar states of consciousness. So drawing on various ancient traditions of uh, yoga, yogic breathing, and uh, rhythmic drumming, um, he uh, he came up with this protocol that essentially involves um, very rapid breathing in an exaggerated way where you exhale much more powerfully than you inhale. And um, and, and you do this to, to a beat, to a very loud beat that you're hearing. And it's the most amazing thing because within a few minutes in doing this crazy kind of breathing you 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 kind of leave planet earth and you are in a psychedelic state and i stayed in it for about 45 minutes and i was moving my body and doing this breath without even trying i, I it was like i was hypnotized i could not control my body 
I was like dancing on my back and breathing like this. And um, the guide eventually brought me out of it after about 45 minutes. And I was stunned at how close to our everyday normal consciousness these other states are, um, that you could get there simply by changing the pattern of your breath. Um, other examples, um, meditation. People achieve mystical experience through meditation. It's hard. Um, it takes a long time, but it definitely happens. And we now know, too, that the brains of experienced meditators, if you scan them on an MRI, fMRI, they look just like people on a psychedelic experience. Wow. The default mode network is quieted there, too. I think all these techniques for altering consciousness probably work on the default mode network. We can't say that for sure, but it, it's true in the case of meditation and um, psychedelics. No one's done the breath work. And I think people are moving too much for that to be scannable. Um, and then the one other one I, I haven't tried yet, but I would recommend to people who are curious in exploring altered states of consciousness, because it's completely legal, is, um, is these sensory deprivation tanks. Uh, which are kind of having a revival. You, you know, they're, they're around. I, I was just in LA and there's a bunch of them in LA and they've just come to Oakland. And, and basically you get in these pods that um, look like, you know, little spaceships and uh, the water, it's, it, it's very salty water. That's exactly your body temperature. Uh, you wear a bathing suit or you're undressed and they're sealed perfectly. So there is no light and no sound. And apparently you enter into a psychedelic state very quickly. And that's because your brain, when it's deprived of any kind of orienting sensory information, starts making stuff up and starts projecting onto that blank wall um, its fantasies, its images, its stories. Um, so, yeah, there are other ways to get there. And, um, and I'm interested in exploring some of those, but I, you know, uh, last night I did an event in LA and some guy came up to me after and gave me a gift certificate to his sensory deprivation tank. So I may try that next. Oh, that's awesome. Have you seen the movie Altered States? It came out in the 80s. You know, I saw it when it came out and I can't remember it and I know it's relevant. So I really need to see it again. You should rewatch it. The, the protagonist in the movie, he basically takes, he's a scientist and he's, he starts dosing himself with LSD while also- While in the tank. While in the tank. And he basically, it changes, it mutates his DNA and he devolves into a gorilla or like a man-ape sort of hybrid. It's it's an amazing movie, actually. Uh, if you're listening, highly- it's like William Hurt, I think. Yes. Right? Highly recommend yeah. you go check out that movie. All right. I'm going to check that out. It, That'll be another up. altered state. Yes. Well, I really appreciate your time and your work. The book, uh, How to Change Your Mind, is amazing. So thank you for writing it. Um, all you listeners, you should definitely go check that out. Michael, I've got one last question for you. Um, but before I get to that, how can listeners, well, you've got your book, obviously, which just came out in paperback. And I, and I have my website too, where I, I've posted a lot of information about uh, psychedelic resources for people who want to get involved and learn more. And um, I can't make recommendations of how to find psychedelic guides, but I offer some clues there on how you might find your way to somebody in your community because they're all over the place, these underground guides. Um, but, um, yeah, so michaelpollan.com and there's a resource page. It also has local psychedelic societies, uh, which are really interesting new institutions and in, like they're in 120 cities now around the world where people just get together and talk about psychedelic experience. Um, and, uh, so yeah, and there's some other, other resources, but, but, you know, between the book and, and that, I think you'll be pretty well equipped for, uh, for adventuring. 
That's rad. Cool. Thank you for sharing. Um, the last question that gets asked to everybody on this podcast is uh, a bit more philosophical. Take it where you'd like. What does it mean to you, Michael Pollan, to live like a genius? <laughs> uh, well, I guess it's just kind of leading with your best self. I mean, we all have a shadow self and we have our best self. And the best self is the one that writes the books and um, stands up before an audience and, and, and tries to tell them the truth as, as you know it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, just realizing you, you have a limited amount of time on this planet. And uh, especially when you have the culture's ear, as I, I feel I've been privileged to do for the last few years, both around food and around psychedelics, um, to use that opportunity really well to share the truth as I understand it and not to bullshit people. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And to eat food, not too much, not too much, mostly plants. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I, I stand by that. I stand by that. I had Marion Nessel on my podcast. Who's a brilliant, Oh, she's a dear friend. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. She, she, she quoted you very lovingly. Uh -huh. Well, she quoted me, but I learned I learned a lot of what I know about nutrition from her. Oh, really? Um, you know, as journalists, we're not we're not always original thinkers. You know, we're, what we are is people who are very curious. We know where to get the information. We know who to trust, and then we know how to express it in a way that's perhaps a little more memorable or or um, or uh, sticky than uh, than scientists do. Yeah, well, that, I mean, yeah, you're you're definitely an inspiration for me. I mean, it's you know, my my work has been motivated by, uh, you know, this perpetual journey into the reality of the food system and and nutrition and exercise and sleep and trying to really help people understand just how empowered they actually are when it comes to their health. Yeah, um, and the, and more empowered than people believe. And food is really, a, you know, the exciting thing about food, and, I, and I've worked on that for a long time, as you know, is that we can make changes there. There's so much in our lives we can't change. Um, you know, it's very hard to do anything about climate change individually, and we, it feels like a drop in the bucket. But the changes you can make around food can change your life and change the lives of farm animals and change the life of, uh, you know, other people as well. So anyway, well, look, it makes me feel really good now that I've moved on from food to work on other stuff that I know that people like you are, um, are, are, you know, keeping the conversation going. I think that's really important. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to all you guys out there in podcast land. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Genius Life. Please take a moment to share it, spread the word on social media, take a screen grab, post it up on your Instagram stories, tweet the link to this episode, follow Michael, share your favorite quote on Twitter, spread the word about what we're doing here. That would mean the world to me. And I will catch you guys on the next episode. Peace.